welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 13 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the evening session of Sunday the 23rd of August 2009, entitled Jesus Christ Our Lord, Part 2. And the Bible reading is the book of Jude, verses 1 to 4. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. Jesus Christ Our Lord. And we looked at that name a bit this morning and just what the difference parts of that name meant. God willing, we I told you this, uh, this particular message had four points. We got the introduction this morning. We're going to try to get through at least point one tonight, and uh, we'll just take whatever time we need. The epistle of Jude, once again, and I'm not going to take and read the whole book as we did this morning again, but just reading the first four verses there. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's holy word, beginning in Jude and verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you again this evening for this time that you have allowed us, Lord, to be able to come together for the health and the strength of each one that is here. Father, we thank you for saving our souls. We thank you for your word and your spirit that dwells within. We pray now, Lord, that you would see fit this evening, Lord, to anoint, to speak to our hearts through your power, not through ours. Father, you know the need of each and every heart here this evening. You know those that might need to be saved, the backslider that might need to be restored, the Christian that's this carrying that burden that needs to be uh, just encouraged and exhorted. Father, you know the need, and we pray that you would meet those needs and that you would save, get all the glory and all the honor for, for whatever is accomplished, and we pray it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in our series in Contending for the Faith, and of course, we said that this is number 13 uh, in, in the series that, uh, that we're currently going through. And of course, the first half a dozen sermons were taken right from the book of Jude here in, again, this exhortation that we have given to us to contend for the faith. Then we ask ourselves that question, well, just what is it that we are to be contending for? And, of course, the latter part of this series then has been contending for the faith, the fundamentals. We began with looking at the first of those fundamentals, that is, the basis of our faith, which is the Word of God. And, of course, we, uh, we looked at uh, three different sermons there, and then we moved in on the 11th sermon to the eternal existence of a triune God. And, of course, as we looked at God in His three-in-one state, we said this morning as we began into this one, we're looking at that second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, we looked at that this morning, and we said, you know, there are so many things 
I told him, Brother Russ, I could, I, without any doubt, however much time we've got left until I die or the rapture or however this world comes to an end, you know, the truth is, number one, I could preach about Jesus every day until then and never finish. And so this series could just go on for all of eternity and never even get to the next fundamental. But the truth is, is that in all that we preach, we should never forget to preach Jesus. He's a part of everything that we do. We said this morning, I cannot, it would be impossible for me to over-exaggerate the importance of this fundamental because even though we saw from the Word of God, even though that the basis of our faith is taken from right here, from the Word of God, Jesus Christ is the foundation of that faith. And I said this morning, and I believe that I can back it up and support it, that every other fundamental, and there are some very important fundamentals, cardinal things in the faith that cannot be moved away from for anybody, for anything. But folks, there is this one fundamental, the doctrine of Christ himself, that if we don't have that one right, it makes absolutely no difference what we believe about any of the others. It just won't matter. We saw this morning how it's through the doctrine of Christ and that doctrine alone that if we have it, then we have the God. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and we have the Father. But he also says that if we don't have that doctrine of Christ, then we don't have him. And we saw that there was a very, very strong exhortation given that when those come that would deny that doctrine, that are not standing true upon the doctrines of Christ, not only are we not to invite them in and, and allow them to come into our house, not only are we not to entertain them, but we're not even to wish them Godspeed. We shouldn't even wish them luck in what they're doing or anything. We shouldn't have anything to do with it because we become partakers of their evil deeds. And so I just can't. It's impossible for me to overimpress the importance of what we believe about Jesus Christ. And we looked at this Jesus Christ, our Lord, and what those meant. But we said that there were four fundamentals about the doctrines of Christ that we were going to, to look at. And I told you that we would begin with the, uh, with the first one this evening. And of course, I said that those four fundamentals, the things that we cannot be wrong about folks when it comes to the doctrine of Christ is first of all the virgin birth. And that's what we're going to be looking at this evening. The virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, his vicarious death. Third, his victorious resurrection. And fourth, his visible return. We can't be wrong about what we believe about these things. And so we find that as we look this evening, we want to, uh, to turn to this thought of the, the virgin birth. And I, I, Ask this question, I guess, right at the end of the close this morning of just, of just how important that we would think that it is. I shared with you an illustration of a pastor of a church that had not long been out of seminary that was pastoring what's supposed to be a conservative evangelical, yeah, it was even a Baptist church. <laughs> and he had come out of this seminary and he stood there and he looked me straight in the eyes as genuine and sincere and such a nice guy. And he was just absolutely as sincere as he could be and said that he didn't believe in the virgin birth and it didn't make any difference to his faith or the people that he was ministering to. And he was serious. Folks, we find that we saw in our reading earlier from 2 John that this morning, I should say as far as earlier, mm -hmm. that the Bible said that there were many deceivers in the world, 
many deceivers that would not confess that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. Now, there have always been those that either didn't believe it or didn't accept the virgin birth, but this is. It's one of those fundamental cardinal truths that has been resisted, that's been fought by the theological liberals in the pulpits, by the liberal schools of this world, to try in any way that they can to undermine it. You know, there are those that rather than to just accept that the Lord Jesus Christ is God, and that if he is God, he had to come by that virgin birth, that God came in the flesh by the way of a virgin birth, so that he could be God amongst us, that he might be able to save men from their sin. Some people doubt it. Some people out and out deny it. Some people just don't want to deal with it whatsoever. And some, as we've seen, actually deceive others. And sometimes, sometimes that deceiving is intentional. They know exactly what they're doing. And sometimes they're so deceived themselves, they don't even realize that they're deceiving others. Now, Sadly, that doesn't just happen in private life, but it happens in pulpit life. It happens from the pulpits of many, many, many churches today. Now, a name that I know most Americans would recognize. I'm not sure how many of you British will recognize it. How many of you have ever heard the name Robert Shuler before? Heard of the Crystal Cathedral out in, out in California? Well, I want to read you a quote and I made sure that I got it just right. It came from the Wittenberg door in January of 1976, and this is what he said. He said, I could not in print or in public deny the virgin birth of Christ. But when I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. <laughs> in other words, he's saying clearly that he didn't believe in the virgin birth but he couldn't say that from his pulpit, and he couldn't put it in the writing, so he just didn't say anything about it at all. And you know, many times that's part of the problem too. You can hear some of these men preach and preach, and you think, boy, that sounds good. And a lot of times it's not what they are saying, but what they're not saying that's so bad. We find that as we look at this great truth that's before us, why would there be so much resistance to something that most of us would just accept and believe by faith? Why is it important that you and I contend for this fundamental truth, that we fight for it, that we live for it, that we die for it, that we don't move from it no matter what? Well, I'll tell you a couple of things, and I hope that you'll see these by the end of the night. Folks, if there is no virgin birth, there is no divinity to Christ. It's impossible. You, you want to know something really, really? You, you hear these things sometimes, it's just strange and wonderful. Do you know that according to the Quran, the Muslims actually believe in the virgin birth? There's at least two verses in there that uphold the virgin birth, and yet they don't believe in the deity of Christ. Now you figure that one out. The, 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 the Quran will tell you that he's not God, but yet it will say that he was born a virgin birth. I find that astounding. You know, why in the world, why in the world could anybody be born a virgin if it wasn't an act of God? Praise God. You know, I don't know what it is. But if there is no virgin birth, there is no divinity to Christ. Because, folks, if he wasn't born a virgin, then he was only born a man. And that's it. Secondly, if there's no virgin birth, 
There is no Trinity that we looked at in our last message or message before last because he not only is just merely man, but he was created by the seed of man. If there's no virgin birth, we can forget, brother, where's, where's Brother Steve? We're talking about the inspiration of God's Word this morning. Well, if there's no virgin birth, we don't have any inspiration of God's Word because by the time we get to looking at the Scriptures tonight, the Scriptures are lying to us if there's no virgin birth. We can't, we can't hold them up as trustworthy because I believe that you'll find that God states very clearly. He makes it so descriptive that there can be absolutely no doubt. So you take away the virgin birth. You're going to have to take away inspiration. As a matter of fact, and listen carefully, if there is no virgin birth, there's no gospel, there's no atonement, there's no salvation because it all becomes possible without God having become man and come to us in the flesh to fulfill his law, to live the life that we couldn't live, to be the only acceptable sacrifice, to die that death, to be the sufficient sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world. Without the virgin birth, none of that is possible whatsoever. Now, there are certain laws of reproduction that just simply can't be violated. Now, the truth is, is that as we look at animal life, it is actually possible that there are a few species that don't require the male in order to reproduce. We find that in those, however, that there's something very interesting because any species where the female can reproduce without a male, she can only reproduce females. <laughs> It's just impossible without the male chromosome. It's impossible for a male to be produced. Now, in human reproduction, a male is required. And it's from the male that the seed comes into the equation. In this case, there is then a male and a female chromosome. And so you get that great surprise because you don't know whether it's going to be a boy or a girl because it can be either one when it comes out. Of course, now a lot of times they take the picture ahead of time and they take the surprise out of it unless you tell them not to. But when you break this down in its simplicity, folks, I'm just saying this is not rocket science. This is common sense stuff. If Jesus was merely a man, then a seed had to come from man. If he was God, a seed had to come from God. Man plus woman can never equal God. It's an impossibility. If we've got God's word that was inspired, by him. And it is the very basis of our faith. And this is the very foundational doctrine of our faith in considering the virgin birth. What does God's word actually have to say about it? Well, I want to take you back, first of all, something, again, you may have seen it before, but it was exciting to me because I'd, I'd never really noticed this that close until I was restudying this, even though I've preached from this passage many times. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we find what we uh, called the first prophecy of the Messiah in Scripture. And God said, I will put enmity, talking to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, folks, again, this was exciting when I looked at it and I saw it. I'd never noticed it, and I'm getting to be you know, not such a young man anymore. When you look at that passage there, when we talk about the seed, where does the seed come from? It comes from the man. It's the seed of the man. 
But yet here when God's talking to Satan, when he's prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you find it's the seed of the woman that he's talking about. Why? Well, if he's speaking of a normal birth, then he wouldn't be speaking of the seed of the woman, but he'd be speaking of the seed of the man. Well, he tells us, he's told us through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, for years, this is one of the places that the liberals have come to and they've pointed out that in the Hebrew, there's a couple of different words that could be translated, but that the word that was translated as virgin here could or should have been translated as young woman or as maiden. They're saying that the, the mistake actually came in in the Septuagint when it was being carried over, that this word was carried over instead of that word, and therefore this word doesn't really mean that it had to be a virgin, that it could have just been a maiden or a young woman, and therefore you'll find that in many of your new modern translations of today, it's been changed. It no longer says virgin there, but they've changed it to say a maiden or a young woman. Now, well, first of all, what does God say there? The prophecy says that the Lord himself is going to do what? He's going to give a sign. Well, now, what kind of a sign would it be for a young woman to conceive and bear a son. I mean, how many times has that happened since he said that was going to happen? Which if you change it to just a young woman or a maiden, God said, I'm going to give you a sign. A woman's going to bear a son. Now, how is that going to fit into to showing anybody anything anywhere? But however, if he's going to give them a sign, and it's a virgin that's going to bear a son, now that's going to get somebody's attention. That's going to be something that really is a sign. So he said, I'm going to give you a sign. And then he turned around and said, a virgin should conceive. Now, the New Testament fulfillment leaves absolutely no doubt whatsoever as to how that son was conceived, how that he was born of a virgin. And I want to tell you something, that the word that is listed as virgin in the New Testament, it can't be translated any other way and be correct. It can only be that way. But just in case... Just in case that, that somebody tries to tell you different, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. You see, God didn't leave it just in this case to the understanding of, you think he didn't know that they'd start trying to tamper with his word and weaken it and water it down and take things out and change things. God knew all these things. But notice in Matthew chapter 1, and notice what it says beginning in verse 18. And just, just listen, and you, you tell me what it means when I get to the end of it. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband being a just man and not willing to make a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Now, I mean, you know, okay, they're a spouse. There's a whole lot of things that could be said about that, about that engagement period and all of that. The contract had already been signed, but there was this period before that the, the marriage would actually be consummated and relationships would begin as a husband and wife. And that was part of the Jewish tradition. There was a number of reasons for that. But what's happening here is suddenly, how would you feel? if you were the one that was engaged that contracted to her and suddenly 
Your wife's pregnant. And it's very clear. You've never had any husband-wife relationships with her. Well, that's exactly. The Bible says she was a spouse to Joseph before they ever came together. She was pregnant with child, but it was the Holy Ghost. It was of the Holy Ghost. That's who the child was from. Now, Joseph is looking at, but while he thought on these things, and he's not doing anything that you wouldn't have done, while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And we looked at what that name Jesus meant this morning. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. His name is going to be Jesus. Jehovah saves. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and, looked into, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Folks, you know, I don't think that there's even a child here tonight that couldn't understand the simplicity and the clearness of the story that's been told right here of the account that's been given to us that makes it so very clear. And the Word of God even says this is fulfilling that prophecy that we read back there in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. This is in fulfillment because it said back there that a virgin was going to bring forth a child and here is exactly how it's happened now. We find that if you turn just a few pages over in your Bible to the gospel of Luke and look in Luke chapter 1 and notice what it says here beginning in verse 26. He says, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, Cast in her mind what manner of salutation this, what in the world is this guy up to? And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. 
Folks, the Bible doesn't even leave a gray, a shadow area. There's all kinds of doctrines out there. There's all kinds of doctrines that sometimes, you know, we have to come to a conclusion as to where we're going to stand on them. But sometimes there's some areas, if, if it was so clear cut, if it was absolutely so clean cut, Brother Ivis and I were talking about some, some things before the service, about sometimes, you know, some of these doctrines, and we were talking about the fact, you know, of people being hyper-Calvinist and all of this, and of course, you got Arminianism, and you got hyper-Calvinism, you got the extremes of everything, and yet important doctrines, folks, don't understate that they're, don't say that they're not important, but you got great, great men of God in history that are on both sides of that spectrum that God still saw fit to use, and they weren't all right. And when we begin to think, look, I've got it all figured out. Truth is, you know, when you stand in this pulpit, you know, you've got to be sound on the doctrines, on the fundamentals of the faith. But when you stand in this pulpit and begin to think that you've got all the answers and you've got it all figured out, then you're probably getting ready just to make the biggest fool of yourself that you've ever done. There's things that we can't be wishy-washy on. I'm saying to you, you show me any way, shape, or form that God has left any kind of a question as to how Jesus Christ, how he was conceived, and how he came into this world. And yet we have theologians all over the world that try to tear down and try to destroy this doctrine of Christ, and they say that it's not important. I like, you know that if you've been around, one of the passages that I, I really love to preach from it Christmas time is found in the book of Galatians. No, I, you thought I was going to go to Romans, didn't you? <laughs> this is Christmas time. <laughs> Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, in the fullness of time. We talked about, Brother Steve, this is part of what we're talking about this morning. I, I've used dis different illustrations over the years to try to picture this fullness of time. But folks, it was God's perfect timing with everything, with those that were in power, with the languages that were being spoken at the time. It was God's perfect time to bring forth his son. And of course, at that time, everything was being recorded in one of the languages that was the most expressive that could ever be, the language of Greek. That wasn't just coincidence. We were talking about that inspiration this morning and about preservation. Well, the thing is, you need the best, you need the richest, if you're going to translate it into all these other languages and be able to preserve the integrity of the Word of God. But God had it. His timing was perfect. But when that time was right, the Bible says, God sent forth his son and he sent him forth being made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Jesus was made under the law. And you know what? He kept it and he fulfilled it to the letter. Not one point was ever failed in. He came to redeem us that were under the law that every one of us had broke it. We weren't able to. How could that be? Because the coming of Jesus Christ to this world, in God's perfect timing, it was God sending forth his son through the virgin birth 
that because he was God, only for that reason could he live that sinless life that was required and therefore be the sufficient sacrifice to be able to redeem the world that had failed. That sinless life itself is proof evidence that he was God. No human being has ever done it, and no human being will ever do it. Only Jesus could do it because he was God in the flesh. There's another interesting point in our reading there in Matthew, and, and you know, Brother Russell probably figured this out years ago because he's into a lot of these words and things, but I only recently saw this. But again, it's one of those little things. I mean, they're amazing. I mean, just even the tiniest things in God's Word, how they just fit together. Do you notice that when you read there in, in Matthew chapter 1, where, that, uh, where did we begin there just a, a moment ago? In verse 18, where it says, Now the birth of Jesus. Well, now go back up to verse 1 of that same chapter. It says, The book of the generation of Jesus. You know what I found out when I got to doing a little studying there? That word that's translated birth in 18 and that word that's translated generation up in verse 1, they come from the exact same root. They're both talking about a nativity. And when you begin to look at it, one of them is simply giving us the genealogy of the physical side that set him up on the throne of David that we read about. And the other one was showing us the spiritual side which came straight from God himself through the virgin birth that put him up on the kingdom throne, praise God. The same thing, they're both. The nativity, they're where he came from. They're where the spiritual 100% God Jesus came from and the 100% man came from. You see, God... In everything that he does, he's so perfect. We take God's word as we see it and it is clearly taught to us, it is given to us. We can and folks, I don't see, I don't see how you can read it and honestly have any doubt whatsoever as to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We can also see the importance of this fundamental doctrine when we begin to look at it and we begin to see it. We can see how that, well, if there is no virgin birth, we can see how that relates to the divinity of Christ. You can't on the one hand say that he's God if he was born of a man. He can't be part of the ever eternal existence that we've already looked at, the eternal existent triune God. He can't be part of that Godhead if he was born of man when he came into this world into Bethlehem. We've already talked about how can you sit back on the one hand and say I've got the inspired word of God and that word give you a clear-cut picture of exactly how this man came into this world and yet say we don't need that. I'm not sure about that. That doesn't have to be there and still say you've got the inspired word. It doesn't work, folks. And of course, we've seen what Jesus did. He came. And we'll look at this as we move through these other things that are cardinal, that are fundamental to the doctrines of Christ. But I want you to understand, he couldn't have paid the atonement. He couldn't have redeemed us. He couldn't have substitutionarily died for us if he didn't come by the virgin birth. If he came by man, it would have been impossible. Oh, I love that word, propitiation. <laughs> you know, when he came, he was not just a propitiation for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I mean, 
The sacrifice was sufficient, folks. When Jesus Christ died upon that cross, when he shed his blood, it was sufficient for every sin that had ever been sinned and every sin that would ever be sinned in the future. It was sufficient. Now, it's not always been applied, has it? You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was enough to cover your sins. But if it's not been applied, it's not going to do any good whatsoever. We're not talking about blanket salvation. But boy, we're talking about that sacrifice. It was everything that was required of God. Everything to meet God's requirements when Jesus Christ fulfilled it. As a matter of fact, I want to repeat this, that if we miss the fundamental doctrine of Christ, folks, don't worry about what you believe about the other stuff. <laughs> don't worry yourself about it. You're just wasting your time anyway. As a matter of fact, you know, the truth is, is that you can't really understand the other doctrines until you get this one right. Because you can't understand them with the natural mind anyway. It just won't happen. But when Jesus comes in and the Holy Spirit takes up residence, then we've got somebody to teach us, to give us that understanding. There's always been and there always will be doubters, the deniers, the deceivers, those that just don't want to deal with it. But for us, but for us, I couldn't let you go without taking you to at least two verses in Romans. Amen. Romans chapter 3. And I'm going to leave you with these verses tonight. Preacher, you know, some of these times I've, I've had people talk about these great theologians, and sometimes you can feel intimidated. Because here's some guy that he's got all these degrees after his name and he's got all these things and he's sent under all these peoples of man's institutions, not God's, by the way, to study. And he can intimidate you because you think, man, you know, he's got all the answers. And yet I'm saying to you, I don't care what any man says. If it goes contrary to the inspired word of God, which we've already declared is the very basis of our faith, that's why we're going to believe it because God says it. And when God says it, that's sufficient. Whether we understand it, it doesn't matter. Truth is, in Romans chapter 3, in verse 3, he tells you very, very clearly. He says, for what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. I'm saying, folks, if God said it, it don't matter. It don't matter where they've been educated. don't matter what they've been said. don't matter who they've said under. The fact is, if it goes contrary to this book, then let man be the liar. God can't lie to you. And I'm saying to you, there is absolutely, positively no way that we can allow into the doctrine of Christ his virgin birth to ever pass, to be a non-issue. Just because we can't comprehend it, there's a lot of things about God we'll never comprehend, but we can believe him, praise God. He's explained to us exactly how it happened. So this evening, thank God, he did exactly what he said that he would do. And he did it, you know, the virgin birth was for one purpose, that he might redeem you and me and every other sinner from their sins. That's why he came. 
That was his purpose in coming, folks. The virgin birth is vital. It's important. But the virgin birth is there for your salvation. Because without it, there would be no salvation. Father, we thank you this evening, Lord, as we've looked at these simple truths in your word. Father, we realize that this is something that, as Christians, it ought to just be a given. That we just accept it. We know it to be a fact. And Father, I thank you, and as far as I know, everybody here does that. Lord, thank you for letting us look in your word again tonight and just be reminded, Lord, of the importance of this great doctrine, that, Lord, you accomplished what man could not accomplish, that you accomplished it on our behalf, that we could be redeemed from our sins, that Jesus Christ could come and be that sufficient sacrifice for each and every one of us. And, Father, you know the hearts of each one here this evening. There may be somebody here this evening that's never truly given their hearts to Christ. They've never repented of their sins and trusted by faith in the finished work of Calvary. Lord, I pray that you would work on their hearts tonight. I pray that before they leave this place tonight, that they might humble themselves, admit their sinfulness, be willing to turn from that sin, and seek forgiveness based totally and completely upon the finished work of Christ. And Father, you know the hearts here this evening. There may be somebody that's saved, but is walking at a distance that needs to be drawn back. Father, you know the Christians' hearts. You know the needs. Maybe somebody just needed to be encouraged and challenged. Maybe there's somebody here this evening that's carrying a, an extra load. And Father, we just pray that you would meet the needs as only you can. And Lord, that if we can be of help in any way, that you'd use us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. <music> 